uh, God's Word. It's, it's in Acts 19. If you remember, I just like to give a summary every week. So where we are, especially if you're, if you're visiting, I haven't been here in a while. We are in our study of Acts. We go through books of the Bible here and uh, look at all of God's Word, the whole counsel of God. And uh, this is the church on a mission. We've been seeing a lot of themes throughout Acts. And one of those main themes, of course, has been evangelizing. Or the early disciples, especially the Apostle Paul, bringing the gospel to the whole world. Isn't that what Jesus commissioned his followers to do? Right, And that's what they were doing. And so actually we're going to look at that word, the gospel, this morning. And actually from that word in Greek, where we get gospel, we also get evangelizing or evangelical. Evangelization, it means to share, to bring the good news, right? And so um, we see that's what Paul is doing. And so we're here in Acts 19, just the first 10 verses this morning. So Acts 19, 1 to 10. Um, we're going to look at that in just a minute. I'm going to read it. But what we're going to see is we're going to see Paul. He's going to uh, meet a group of disciples. You know, it's great going through a book uh, like Acts, which is so much history, right? It's a history of the early church. We get to meet some really interesting people. And so we don't have names of these disciples, but Paul meets a group of people and he asks them, an important question. We're going to kind of look at the implications of that question for us as a church this morning. You know, um, I titled the message, The Truth, The Whole Truth, and Nothing But the Truth. You know, it usually goes after that, right? So help me God. We know. Where do you see that? You see that on, on shows that have to do with, um, with legal stuff, right? Or in the courtroom. And so somebody's going to go under oath and share a testimony and so the judge wants to make sure that what they're sharing is true, right, and not false. And so uh, normally, I think they still do this, right, had to swear on the Bible, interesting, and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right, so that their testimony would have credibility. And so that the jury can make an informed decision, a wise decision based upon information that is not only true, but that is full in scope. So it is the truth, and they don't just leave it there. It is the whole truth, and there's nothing but the truth. Isn't it interesting? I mean, I think we need all three of those things, because we're saying it's the truth, but not just that. We want to say it's the whole truth, so we're not leaving anything out. And it's nothing but the truth, so we're not adding anything to it. See that? We're not subtracting, and we're not adding. That's another theme that we've seen all throughout the book of Acts, where we've had this group of people um, who were uh, part of uh, the new believers in Christ, but who were saying that all of the new converts needed to become Jewish before they could become a Christian, in essence. Where they had to still... Obey and follow the law, especially the law of circumcision. We talked a lot about that, okay? And so it's important we recognize what this true gospel is. So we've addressed this in many ways already, but this theme keeps coming up. What is it that people are believing about Jesus Christ? 
You know, um, there was a survey done. It was actually just last year, October of last year. And it was a survey of over 3,000 people here in this country by Lifeway Research. They do a lot of um, they do a lot of surveys based upon Christianity and church life. And uh, what they found was that um, Americans still overwhelmingly identify as Christian. But what they've noticed is that there's startling statistics to show that people who identify as Christian don't know even what the gospel is. And so this article kind of says, uh, it's titled, we, Christians are an embarrassment to heretics everywhere. It's kind of funny saying that the idea is just like, the irony is that the vast majority of people would say they're a Christian, but they have no idea what that means. That's basically what it's saying. And so in this article, it goes on to say, um, a startling percentage of the nation embrace that, that claim to be Christian embrace ancient errors in the faith and an orthodoxy that was condemned many, many years ago. All right? So um, he gives this quote, and I thought it was kind of funny. The author says, Americans talking about theology sound about as competent as country singers rapping. I thought that was funny. Take that as you like. So the idea is there's just this, there's this misplaced understanding of saying that you're a Christian, proclaiming you would might even know what the gospel means, but not even, even knowing how to express it or what it truly says. So I just want to read you just a few of these statistics. I don't want to get caught up in that, but just to sort of give you this foundation of where we're going today. All right. This is a good thing. Seven out of ten respondents uh, in this LifeWay survey of people who claim to be Christians affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity. Very good. Six in ten, sixty percent agreed that Jesus is both human and divine. All right. Very good. But then the author says that's kind of where their consistent orthodoxy ended. Because then he goes on to say that from this survey, more than half, more than 50% went on to indicate that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Which if you didn't know, we're not going to get into that. That was a heresy known as Arianism. And that was um, denounced at the Council of Nicaea in the early year of 325 A.D. And so the point is, the author is trying to say, here are some things that many Christians are saying and proclaiming that early Christians said, this is a heresy, and we need not, uh, we better not teach this in the church. But that, that happened all the way back in 325. He's trying to say that people who identify as Christians today are still proclaiming that. 70% of participants agreed that there's only one true God. 70% of participants. So in and of itself, that's not very good. That 7 out of 10 people who say that they're Christian still only say there's one true, there's only one true God, which is true, but only 7 out of 10 say it. But then it gets even worse. Then it says 64% of them also thought that God accepts the worship of all religions, including believing in many different gods and many different ways to get to heaven. And these are just people who proclaim to be uh, Christians. We're going to get to what it means to be evangelical in just a second. 
So two-thirds of these people surveyed admitted that everyone sins at least a little bit, so that's good. But still, they insisted that most people are good by nature. And uh, the, the uh, author says, I guess they forgot about that verse that says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See what he's saying? Over half said that it's fair for God to exercise His wrath against sin. So only half, I should say, said it's fair for God to exercise sin, uh, exercise wrath against sin, but they seemed not so sure of which sins deserved wrath and which didn't. You see where we're going with this? 74% said smaller sins don't warrant eternal damnation. 60% agreed eventually everyone gets to heaven. These are people that say they're Christians. And then half of those said only those who believe in Jesus will be saved. Do you see what the problem is? They take a survey, okay? More than half check a box saying that, yes, I believe that only those who believe in Jesus will be saved, but they also agree that everybody gets to heaven. What's the problem there? They don't even know what they're saying or believing. Then he goes on, and I, I won't belabor the point, but he goes on to talk about, okay, so what Lifeway did is they said, let's take another survey, and we're going to, we're going to um, ask the people questions first just to try to make sure that they understand even what it means to be a born-again Christian or an evangelical, let's say, to try to narrow down the field, assuming then that those who identify as born-again or evangelical... Um, that they, of course, would do much, much better in the survey. But, of course, what they found, unfortunately, is that it was just as bad, sometimes even worse. Evangelicals, he says in this survey, believed that only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. That's good. Yet, nearly half of those also agreed that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Judaism and Islam. Two-thirds of evangelicals said heaven is a place where eventually all people will go and be reunited with their loved ones. So if that was confusing, that's good. Because that's the whole idea. You read through it and you start to get confused and say, people who identify, even identifying as what they believe would be an evangelical or born-again Christian, someone who reads the Bible consistently and understands it, still doesn't understand what they believe. Here's why I bring that up. What we're going to see today is a very simple principle. As we're going to look at Acts 19, 1-10, we're going to see Paul asks a very specific and simple question to these disciples to try to get at the heart of identifying what it is they believe. You know, this week I had a couple of interesting things happen to me. You could probably relate to this. As I was thinking through this passage, you know, um, on Monday, the day before 4th of July, um, we had off, right? Most people have off at work that day. You know, a lot of people do. And so I loaded up my car with all the recycles that I had forgotten to put out and all the boxes and all the old bottles and cans and everything, loaded it all up. And of course, then the car was just stinking from all the old stuff and it was packed with boxes and it was hot that day. So I'm packing it all in and I go just, you know, less than a mile down the road from our house is the Recycle Center, because they're open until 3 o'clock uh, Monday through um, Saturday. 
And so I figured, you know, well, let me check before I go and do this and load up my car. Let me check their website for the town to make sure that they are open. So nowhere on the website did it say they were closed. I went to their calendar, their events page, you know, the front page. And nowhere, you see where I'm going, right? Nowhere did it say they were closed, that it was the day before the holiday or there was short hours or anything. Good. So we're, we're all set to go. So I load all in. I get there. The gate is closed. And I'm just sitting there and I'm starting to get upset. Because I'm, I'm in my car. And you know, if you load up your car, are you just ready to take trash out? The last thing you want to do is bring it back. Right? Right, right? It is kind of just like when you go to a yard sale. It's like, yeah, you want to sell stuff. I remember every time we'd have a, a garage sale, we'd wind up going around the neighborhood to other people's garage sales. And we would get stuff and come back and feel like, you know, we were trying to get rid of stuff and here we're getting more stuff. So I'm sitting there at the gate and I have to confess, I was very tempted to just leave it all at the gate. But of course I knew it was wrong and plus there's a big sign that says under video surveillance, so that wouldn't work out. I mean, that's not the main reason I didn't do it because it certainly wouldn't be the right thing. But in my mind, I had visions of dumping the stuff at the gate and just going like this to the, you know. So I went home and I rechecked it. No, I didn't know what the problem was. And so they didn't advertise anywhere that they were closed that day. Right? So the truth is they were closed, but they didn't give the full information on the website because it said on Mondays they're open, but they didn't give the full information for that day. So then, you know, a few days later, I guess it was, um, maybe it was Thursday night, we wanted to just find a, a place to, to grab something to eat. And so we wanted to eat down by the water. It's a nice night. And so um, I looked at this place. Uh, there's a pavilion in, in Avon on the, on the boardwalk, right? And they, well, you can eat there. So I went to the website. So let me just check to make sure they're open. And it gives the hours very specifically, right? They're open. It says breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Good, so they do have dinner, because this is dinner time. And uh, breakfast, it says what days they're open and what times. Lunch, they're open for a certain period of time, uh, and it says what days. And it says dinner, they're open. It only said, um, it, it said specific days, it said, uh, su- it said Sunday through Thursday. And so I was like, okay, so they're not open Friday and Saturday for dinner because they're probably not that kind of establishment. They don't serve alcohol. You know, a lot of people come down to the Jersey Shore, they have dinner and, you know, drinks on the boardwalk. So they probably didn't want to be that kind of establishment. So it says right on their website, on the front page, that they're open um, Sunday through Thursday night for dinner. I'm like, oh, man, we can't go there. Okay. So we went to another local place, but we wound up actually having to come back that. We took a nice road down the ocean. And don't you know, we pass it, and the place is packed, and everybody's having a grand time eating outside, eating, and all kinds of merriment, enjoying the beautiful weather. And I'm looking thinking, that's what we wanted to do. But the website, I almost wanted to pull over and walk in and say, can I talk to the manager? Have you seen your website? Why are you open? You know, and I was just like, man, again, misinformation. They specifically said when they're open, but I, we drove by it. They weren't supposed to be there, but they were there, and they were open. Isn't it important that we as followers of Christ know the truth and share the truth? That we know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? 
that we are supposed to then share that. So, keeping that as sort of the context, let's read this. Just the first ten verses of Acts 19. And it happened that while, while Apollos, a guy we met last time in chapter 18, while he was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. So Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. So on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about twelve men in all. In verse 8, So he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Isn't that awesome? So let me just get a few things um, situated here before we kind of really focus on this question that, that Paul asked them and the implications for us. So it says that Paul is now in Ephesus, okay? a new missionary journey. But it says while, Paul, while Apollos was in Corinth, okay? So Apollos was still doing his thing. Remember we met him last time, and I'm going to talk about him in a second. Paul is now coming to Ephesus. This is a great city. It was an area of commerce. There was a lot going on there. We could talk a, a lot about the history of Ephesus, but it was a very important and strategic place for him to be. And so Paul is there, and it says that he found some disciples, but it doesn't say specifically who they were. Later on it says about 12, but it doesn't say... Um, who they were disciples of. It just says disciples. And so we read that. And of course, the first assumption is they were disciples of Jesus. Like, what else, what else would it be? But let's just, you know, continue on there. Then he asks them this question in verse 2. It just says he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's the question he asked them. We'll get to their answer in a minute. But So the first thing we need to, to think about is why did he ask him that question? It doesn't say. It just says he met some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This kind of seems like an odd question, right? He just meets a group of disciples and asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? So again, this is just conjecture. We don't know, but perhaps the Apostle Paul recognized something in these disciples. Maybe he came upon them and they were having a conversation and talking, and he noticed something different about the truths that they were speaking. As they were sharing testimony, encouraging each other, something triggered the Apostle Paul, listen, to ask a question as pointed as this. Did you receive 
the Holy Spirit when you believed. So something was going on with those disciples that triggered Paul to ask that question. Do you remember what happened with Apollos? Remember Priscilla and Aquila were sitting in the synagogue and they heard this guy, a great orator, who was very well educated. And it said that he was like a master of of the, um, the scriptures, so he knew the Old Testament, and he was teaching, and he was doing great things. But Priscilla and Aquila, they heard something in that preaching. And they said to each other, this guy knows about repentance, he knows about the Messiah coming, but he doesn't know that Jesus already came, that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't know the one. They said, let's fill him in. And then it said after that, he became even more great in his testimony for Christ and for his kingdom. You see, Apollos knew part of the story. But Priscilla and Aquila had to fill him in. He knew the truth. He didn't know the whole truth. You see? The same thing is happening here. For evidently there was something missing with the disciples where Paul said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. No. We haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. About that for an answer. So then he asks a really good follow-up question. So into what then were you baptized? Knowing they were baptized, I guess from their conversation, and he says, basically saying, if you weren't baptized in the Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ, then what was your baptism all about? So then they clarified. They said, into John's baptism. You know who we're talking about? John the Baptist, right? Remember who John the Baptist was and what he did. And that he came proclaiming, right? Proclaiming um, Christ to come. And proclaiming um, what was about to happen. And so look at Mark chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen for you. Mark chapter 1, just verses 1 uh, through 8, just as a reminder of what John the Baptist was sent to do. Because this is very important for what we're reading here in this passage. Because these were disciples of John the Baptist, okay? They were disciples of John the Baptist, but they were missing the person of the Holy Spirit. They were not baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, it says in Mark 1, the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important. See how he starts that? The beginning of the Gospel of jesus christ the son of god we're already defining the gospel it's of jesus christ as it is written in isaiah the prophet behold i send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord and make his paths straight so john the baptist was a fulfillment of prophecy Verse 4, so John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, We're going to have some of that at our fellowship lunch later. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have, this is important, I have baptized you with water, 
but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See that? Then a little bit later, verse 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was arrested for doing what he just said he was doing, Jesus came into Galilee. Okay, so John was sent to prepare the way. He was baptizing people in a baptism, listen, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's put it in context. Jesus hadn't even come on the scene yet, but John was baptizing people in the name of repentance and forgiveness. Do you see that? So John's baptism was preparing the way for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would be brought by Jesus Christ. Jesus hadn't taught yet. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. He didn't die yet. He didn't rise again yet from the dead. None of that had happened yet. You see? But John was already baptizing. It says it was a baptism of repentance. There was a preparation of people's hearts. Jews were coming from all over to be baptized. They were recognizing, listen, their need to obey God. They're recognizing their need for forgiveness and to look forward to the Messiah coming to bring that forgiveness. It was in preparation. So John was, just as it said, um, he was preparing the way of the Lord. So John was baptizing a baptism of repentance. So all those that were going to be baptized in the river by John the Baptist, they were understanding their need for salvation. But they yet didn't understand fully that it was coming in the person of Jesus Christ and what he needed to do to provide that salvation. Okay, So there was this baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Um, Repentance is a very important word, and I want to make sure we understand that. In the original languages, here's what repentance means. It means not just a turning around. We often talk about that, repenting, making a turn. It means, more specifically and more importantly, changing of the mind. Changing your thought about something. So when you repent, you are changing your mind about what you thought once and now you are thinking differently, okay? That's why we apply it that way. If you're repenting of your sins, I used to like this and do this and thought it was okay, but now I recognize it's not, so I'm not going to do it. I'm changing my mind. But here's what's most important about that word. In repentance, it applies to our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And I can't stress that enough. Because repentance means thinking one way about Jesus and then recognizing who He is. That He is truly God. The Messiah. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The one promised by God the Father that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. So understanding it one way but then recognizing the truth the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and now believing in that truth. It's a change of mind about who Jesus is. And that is, in essence, the foundation of the gospel, the good news. You see, so that's what, what um, John was preparing the people for. They, had, they were changing their mind about the need for a Savior, the need for the Messiah to come and bring salvation. It was 
a step in preparing the way of the Lord. And that is what John the Baptist was doing. So, again, in the context of our passage, when Paul comes across these 12 or so disciples, they were disciples of John the Baptist, and they said it. We were baptized into John's baptism. But look at what uh, verse 4 says. So Paul is basically thinking, okay, I get it now. And so what does he have to do? He recognizes they don't know the whole truth. They know the truth, right? But it's part of the truth. It's only part of the gospel message. And so Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Right? So then on hearing this, they were baptized again. They were basically rebaptized. But this time they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. For we know that Scripture teaches us very clearly clearly that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and make that profession of faith in Him as the only way of salvation for us, that we are told very clearly in Scripture that we then have the Holy Spirit within us. See that? The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. We have the Holy Spirit never to leave. We have the Lord within us in the person of the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to convict us of sin, to illuminate the the truth of Scriptures. And so that's what Paul recognized was missing with these disciples. And so he told them of of what John the Baptist was foretelling and pointing them towards. They believed, they were baptized, Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, And it says they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now some of you might think, well, when I believed in Jesus, I didn't start speaking in tongues or prophesying. No. Because we also see throughout Acts and other of Paul's teachings, also very clearly, I believe, that the giving of being able to speak another known language, speaking in tongues, or prophesying, was given as a sign to unbelievers or very new believers about the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel. Remember back then when this was happening, to church on a mission, right? In the beginning of Acts with the church and new believers, they did not yet have the word of God as far as the New Testament, did they? They did not have that. We now have that complete record of the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ about his, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, so we know the truth. And so can God still give somebody the gift of speaking in a tongue in another language? I believe he can. Now that is a topic for another sermon on another day. Can he? Of course he can. But regularly speaking, okay, what we see in Scripture is that I believe that that gift, like here, was given as a sign to confirm the power of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the church so they understood it we don't necessarily need that kind of sign anymore because we have the truth of God's word right we have God's word we can read and understand it's true and know it to be true of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us so it says these men then and they went and believed and then Paul the last three verses just says that he went on continuing to preach boldly he kept doing it 
doesn't give specifics, but just says he went on and continued to preach the Word of God to both Jews and Greeks so that everybody in that whole area, it says all of Asia heard the Word of God. Isn't that awesome? I want to just um, focus on a couple of things before we close here, just to make sure we understand what is happening here and the implications for us. That we first need to believe what is true before we can go and share it, right? Did you ever get in a situation where somebody asks you about your faith and you find yourself maybe stumbling over even how to define what the gospel is? Or what the key elements are in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, it's important that we study it and understand it and know it so we can share it. It's that whole principle we talk about a lot here at Trinity about learning and growing and serving. First, you need to learn it, right, and understand it. And then as it teaches, as it uh, helps you to grow in your faith and trust in Him, then you can serve. So we learn, we grow, and we serve, and we serve by sharing. We serve by sharing the gospel. So we need to know the truth before we can share the truth, right? It's simple, but that is the way that it works. So we need to understand that it's unfortunate that we have to see from surveys like I started out sharing with, sharing with you about how many people, especially even those that identify as evangelicals and born again, they don't even know what they're saying. Even on one survey, they'll say one thing and they'll mark another and they're contradictory because they just don't know. So we need to understand the elements, the essential elements of the gospel, what it is that we're sharing, right? I want to list for you um, the three essential elements of what it is that we need to share when we share the gospel. And then, of course, conclude with the fourth one. The first one is, as you can guess, that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. Now I want to just, I'm just going to briefly kind of go through each of these so we kind of understand where this is coming from. But just, and it, this could seem just like basic stuff, but this is so important, especially if we take to heart these surveys and we hear time and again about the state of our church and biblical literacy and all that. We need to understand what the gospel is before we can live it out and then share it, right? So I want to read for you in, in, in showing you these three essentials what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. It'll be up on the screen, but I would like you to, to look at it and read it. You can mark this down. This is the gospel basically in a nutshell. This is Paul sharing in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. See, Paul's doing it, right? He preached them the gospel. They believed. They became saved. And what is he doing? He's reminding them of the truth of the gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, believe it. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. If it's not the truth, if it's not the whole truth, if it's nothing but the truth, and you believe, he says, for what I received, <clears throat> excuse me, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Important words there. This is the first and most important thing I can do is what he's saying. And here are the elements of the gospel. 
that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, because it was proclaimed, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. First, we see that he died for our sins, right? Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. First, we need to understand the reality of sin and that we have a need for a Savior. When John the Baptist was baptizing, it says he was baptizing them into repentance and forgiveness. They were starting to understand their need of salvation. A sinner must acknowledge that he is hopeless before God. And then put, right, place his trust in him, understanding that the wages of sin is death. That's in Romans 6. If you don't start the gospel with that foundational truth, then it's not the true gospel, right? Because oftentimes, unfortunately, what you hear, the gospel preached is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That is true. Be saved from what? Right? And so it's not just believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven. That's true. Believe in Jesus for what? Believe in what about Jesus? Believe in Him for what? And so first, Paul is telling this to the church as I'm sharing this with you now. He said, here's what is most important. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Secondly, right, we have to understand the person and work of Christ. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. It is no one else that offers that salvation. For it says that He was buried that He lived a sinless life that we could never live, that we cannot pay for our own, we cannot earn our own salvation. That Jesus died on the cross and was buried as proof of His death. That He was buried because He was dead. But then of course, we cannot leave out the third element. And again, this happens also. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about how often you might share the good news of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior in a very personal and intimate way. And do you share the fact that Jesus claimed that He would die, that He would be buried, but that He would come back to life, defeating death, right? And offering the hope of life eternal for us, a new life here and life eternal. Do we share and say, You heard of Jesus? Yeah. Do you know that He died on the cross? Yeah, I hear you teach that. Do you know that He rose again from the dead? Do you know that we believe in a Savior who is living and is in us today? The resurrection of Christ, of course, is an essential element of the Gospel. It is proof of the power of God. Only He created life. And only He can reverse death itself. Only He can remove the sting of death. Right, We know, and I say it all the time, every other world religion or faith-based worldview was founded by someone who died and is still dead. But here's the other element that I want to make sure we understand before we close today. We understand, of course, the elements and the essentials of the gospel. 
that Christ died for our sins because we could not die ourselves for it. We could not earn it. Right? And that, of course, He was buried and then rose again, the resurrection. But look, this salvation that Jesus Christ came to offer is a free gift. What does it say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? We have that for you as well. It's a, it's a passage that many of us have memorized and taken to heart. What does it say in Ephesians? For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. So therefore it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. How key and essential is that? That we cannot earn our own salvation. So Jesus doesn't ask us to do good works to earn it or to say and do certain things to earn it. He offers it as a free gift. He offers it as a free gift to us. When we go to share the Gospel, we need to include somehow, in some way, and the Spirit will lead you to do so, these essentials of the Gospel. But we cannot share the truth if we don't know the whole truth. And especially if we're adding to it things that aren't the truth. So let's not, starting here in this church and going beyond these four walls, let's not be representative of those surveys that I read the results from. That we would read and understand the Word of God and especially understand the beautiful, simple truth of the Gospel. That we are all in need of a Savior because in God's eyes, we are sinners. And we deserved that death on the cross that Jesus Christ took on our behalf. That's what we deserve. But Christ took our place and He came and died on the cross for us. He was buried and then defeated death and rose again. So we should proclaim the good news of the resurrection every time, not just on Easter Sunday, right? And we proclaim it. Say, this is the Gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. So we are to know the whole truth and nothing but the truth and then to share that as well. But we need to understand it and know it before we can share it. See, just like Apollos, he knew part of the truth and Priscilla and Aquila shared with him the rest of the story. And just like these disciples that Paul came across, right? Luke, Luke who wrote Acts was trying to, I think, give us a message here. That there was people that only knew part of the truth. But didn't understand that Jesus had come to fulfill the rest of that truth. And He did. So we know it now and we can share it. We live it out and share it with all those that God brings into our path. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the good news of the Gospel. Lord, we recognize that without Christ we are lost. That we are sinners that we are doomed to wrath and to death eternally. But God, we certainly don't want to dwell on that fact, but we understand it. We understand it. It's foundational for us to know that we are then sinners in need of a Savior. And we thank You, God, for being a great promise keeper and sending Jesus Christ, Your Son, Sending Him to be the promised Messiah, the Savior, who would take away the sins of the world, our sin. 
And Father, we also thank you for the beauty and simplicity of the gospel. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, that that we will be saved. That as we believe, we are making a profession of faith. We are repenting and changing our minds about who Christ is. And now putting our faith and trust in him and him alone for life in this world and for life eternal. So God, help us to not only understand it, but to share it, to live it out in our communities, our workplaces, even here in our church as a testimony to you and as a blessing to our brothers and sisters. We thank you for the power of your word. Teach us something new every day. And so God, as we, um, as we sing another great hymn of the faith and proclaim the truth about who you are, and the power of your spirit within us, that we now have him to lead and to guide us. Father, we give you all the thanks and praise. God, embolden us as you did with your servant Paul and Apollos. Embolden us to live out the gospel and to share it, to tell others the good news of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.